yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take a few moments to consider God's word silently. Theologians have often looked at this passage, Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11, as uh, one of the highest um, mountain peaks if the Bible is a mountain range. It's one of the highest peaks in the range. Uh, it's really describing Christ stepping down little by little until he gets all the way down to the bottom, death on a cross. And then it describes a series of steps that, that go up, his exaltation all the way up to the highest place known. And at Christmas, as we begin the Advent season, it's appropriate for us to kind of think about the incarnation of Christ, because that's exactly what we're looking at, Christ becoming a man and being born in a stable in Bethlehem. And so this is the, this is the point where we can really look at the incarnation and glean from it things that will help us understand God and what he did for us. Uh, but this is, um, I should warn you, a little bit of a difficult thing to think about. God becoming a human being is very difficult. In fact, the first few hundred years of our church, the earliest theologians talked and talked and talked about this to try to describe what the incarnation was really like. What words can we use to accurately describe the God becoming, our God becoming a man? Did he lose his godness or did he lose it? Was he not really a man? And so we're trying to understand this. And theologically, it's, it's a little bit difficult but we don't have to go down all of those roads. We can focus in on the essence of the incarnation and understand what it means for us today. And what I'd like us to do this morning is look at Philippians 2 this way, the way that Paul encourages us in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, he does want us to understand certain facts about the incarnation, but we may not be able to understand exactly how it works, like we might understand how a machine works. We won't be able to put everything into our heads, but we can put enough in our heads in order to do what Paul says, to change the way we think. In other words, the incarnation is not just something to behold in our minds and appreciate intellectually. It's something that we're to look at and let that change us change the way we think, change the way that we live. And so as we kind of look at this morning, the incarnation of Christ found in Philippians 2, that's what we want to do. We want to think, okay, how can this change my life? How can this change the way that I think about things and the way that I act and behave in my life? And so that's the encouragement that we have this morning. Uh, we're going to look at a few things. Uh, first, I'll just tell you what they are, and then we'll look at how that changes our mind and our behavior. First, we want to look at Christ's beginning 
And then we want to look at his humiliation, which is those steps down. And then we want to look at his exaltation. After the lowest of low, he comes back up to the highest place known. So those three, his beginning, his humiliation, and his exaltation. So let's look, first of all, at Christ's beginning. Uh, You can see this uh, very clearly uh, in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God. So right there, we know that Jesus is God. Uh, Actually, we say Christ's beginning. But let me just remind all of us, Christ didn't have a beginning. He was born as a man in a given period uh, of history, but, but he never had a beginning. Jesus has always existed because God has always existed. And so we can see this a few ways in this passage. Okay, so first, let's just consider for a moment that this passage that we're reading this morning is actually something that Paul is quoting. It's a song that was written earlier than the book of Philipp- the Philippians, and it was quoted by Paul. We don't know exactly when this song or poem was written, uh, but we know it is a, po- a song or poem because of the way that the words uh, flow in the Greek and the way that it, that it, it, it um, uh, looks like a poem and song. And so we know for sure it's something that the early church had known and celebrated before Paul. So, uh, so the timing is important. Now, why is that important? There are a lot of people, uh, atheists, agnostics, um, and other people, and even some Christians who we might refer to as, as liberal Christians, uh, they believe that Jesus actually didn't claim to be God himself. And that none of his disciples and contemporaries actually heard him say this, and none of the disciples claimed that Jesus was actually God. They just thought of him as, as any typical Jew might. He's a prophet or a good teacher. But as time went on, and after Jesus died, the disciples got together and said, hey, we're going to make something of this. And so they, they elevated Jesus to the status of legend, much like you and I in America, we would you know, elevate Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. And then they went further and they said, okay, maybe he's not just a legend. We'll elevate him even further and we'll begin to assign to him divine attributes. And eventually the church got so into this that someone somewhere along the line went back into the gospels and inserted the claims of Jesus as God and inserted this into the epistles and so forth. And, and said, hey, okay, now we know that Jesus is God. But this didn't happen uh, for, for 100 years after Jesus' death. But Philippians 2 is a very interesting argument against that thought, that, that idea. And, and it is this, that this song was written, or this book of Philippians was written within the first 20 years after Jesus died. And then this song was quoted even before then. You see, so, so that Paul is quoting something that was written very early after the death of Jesus Christ. And so there's evidence there that even the earliest of his disciples actually believed that Jesus was in fact God. This is an absolutely astounding claim that a group of Jews would say this man is God. It's an astounding thing for a Jewish person to say, and yet it happened. So we can rest assured that it actually did happen. Another thing we can look at in Philippians 2 that would convince us that, yes, Jesus actually was God at the very beginning, 
uh, is in verse 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What he's saying here is that Jesus emptied himself, and as he emptied himself, he lost some of these attributes of God that don't exist in human form for men. And as he emptied himself, he didn't grab onto them or hold onto them. He let them fall away by becoming a human being. And so at the beginning, he was God, and it fell away, and he didn't cling onto it or grasp onto it or take hold of it as he was losing them. He let them, voluntarily let them fall away. And the final thing we can see from this passage that he was in fact God uh, was that he was in the form of God. He was in the form of God. Now, now this Greek word, if you go back to the Greek word, it's actually morphe. And the way that morphe is used in uh, biblical Greek is, is a little bit more than the word form might convey. Form might, might sound to you and me like an outward appearance. But really, if you read other translations, it gets a little bit to the heart of this, this Greek word morphe, and it means nature. It means the essence so, so you can read that into this, though he was in the form of God, though he was essentially God, what makes God, God, Jesus had in the beginning. So we can see that Jesus is in fact God. Now, why is this important? Remember, this is an interesting thought. Maybe you can sit back and say, yes, those things convince me. I, I know that it's true, but Paul really wants this to change our minds. So what how does that change us? The first thing that you can think of, I can think of, is that you really have to have the same reaction. The level of your reaction has to be as extreme as Jesus's attributes. He is extremely God. He's the transcendent, all-knowing creator, God of the universe, those are all very extreme ideas, superlative. Any superlative word that you could use, it would describe Jesus as God. And so when Jesus comes to earth as God, we can't just have a casual response. You've heard this before from C.S. Lewis. You know, you, you can't just think he's a good teacher. No, he's either a liar, lunatic, or he's Lord, right? In, in, a, in another uh, way, John Stott says in his book, Basic Christianity, that really there were only three reactions to Jesus. They either were afraid of Jesus and they ran away. They wanted to kill him or they worshiped him. So when you hear people in our world, and maybe some of us would say, yeah, I like Jesus. You can't like Jesus, you see. You either are afraid of him and run away or you want to kill him, or you worship him. It's an extreme reaction that matches the extreme attributes that Jesus possesses as God. Another idea that might change the way that you think and the way that you live is Christ can do something. I remember my first election back in, night. not my first election, let me explain. The first time I ever voted for someone was in 19... Uh, 92 it was the presidential election. And I remember, you know, it was Bill Clinton and, um, and George Bush running for a second term. And this guy from Texas, 
Ross Perot. I don't know if you guys remember that. It was kind of a wild ride. It was a third-party candidate that gained almost 20% of the vote. It was, it was really exciting. I remember that was my first election. And here's how I was during that first election, and a lot of you can relate to this. You, you know, the first time you vote, you think, this is going to change everything. The outcome of this election is going to radically and significantly change the face of the world. Now, that's my, my being naive a little bit. I listened to every debate. I got into it. I really followed every single word. And, and who should I vote for? And this is really important. And, and it is. Voting is important. You know, democracy is great. But my mind went too far as a young man. I thought the politicians had way more power than they actually have. And over the years, I've realized that political politicians, men, women who, who run our country, run the world, their power is limited. And as I became aware of my need, not just in the physical world, politically speaking in our nation, but my need for someone to help me in my soul, you can see how you can look to a man or a woman to save you, and it, and it just doesn't work. And so as we consider that, that Jesus is God, he can actually do something. Let's contrast this. Let's pretend that Jesus wasn't God. He was just a man. Let's pretend. He went around and put little children on his lap comforted them. He, he went to the sick, the needy, and fed them and healed them in some mysterious way that we're not sure of. Because remember, he's not God. And maybe he's a prophet or something, but he's just a man. He's just a man trying to do some good things. He's trying to comfort people in their need. But if that's the case, we should not hope in Jesus. He can't actually save us. If Jesus isn't God, then our faith is futile. That's what Paul says. If he didn't rise from the dead as God Almighty, if he didn't do these things, and was God, then our faith is, is worthless. It's rubbish. So we can trust that Jesus is God. You see how that might change the way you think about people, looking to people to save you, looking for the next person that might be able to save you. And this could be a parent, a teacher, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse. You could look at your own children as little saviors to remedy everything you've done bad and they're gonna do now right. You could look at a politician or someone else in this world but Paul reminds us that since Jesus is God, we need to look only to him for our salvation. So that's, the, that's his beginning. The second part is his humiliation. Let's just look briefly at his humiliation. You'll find this again in verse 6. He, he voluntarily condescended and came to earth. He lived as a man under the law to suffer for our salvation. Look at verse 6. Jesus did not count equality with God. He emptied himself, verse 7. Verse 8, he humbled himself. Again in verse 8, he became obedient. I want you to see this humiliation again as astounding. Because as Christ stepped down from heaven to earth, and then down to death, and then even further down to death on a cross, as he went all that journey, he never lost his godness. He was 100% God and 100% man. That's absolutely astounding. 
no one else believes this. Muslims think he's a great prophet, second only to Muhammad. Jehovah Witnesses, yeah, he was just a prophet. Christians who, who as we described, are a little bit more liberal on theology, well, he was, the, he was a great teacher, they, they might say. Mormons think he was a man and then stopped being a man and became God, transformed into God. Never the two at, at once. It was just a man who became God or a God. <laughs> Jews would never think of such a thing. How could God, the transcendent God of the Bible, who is I am that I am, that God, come down and be a man? How is that possible? Buddhists, it's some kind of force called nirvana. Hindus, well, there's 330 million gods. <laughs> and you can transform into a Brahmin or God yourself if you do things right. But only Christianity says that God himself became a man. Jesus lived in such a way that, that people around him saw his miracles, saw his teaching, and he concluded, Jesus must be different. He must be special. He must be a prophet. He must be the son of God. He must be God in human form. And the temptation here to eliminate either him being God or him being a man is very great. But the way that the Bible puts it together is he's 100% God and he's 100% man. He comes down and dwells as a physical human being. Okay, so how does this Yes, I believe that. That's great. Okay, let's take that. Hope you're convinced of that. It's, it's right there in Philippians 2 and other places. But how does that change your mind or your thinking? How does it change your life? Well, Christ's humiliation can change us in, in this way. The, this, this is the greatest thing I, I think. When I think of his humiliation, it's the greatest lesson I can learn. And this is this, that where Jesus Christ goes, we must go as well. Christ destroyed every boundary or eliminated every boundary that existed between him as God in heaven and sinful man on earth, right? And then once he was living on earth, where did he go? Who did Jesus move towards? Who did he spend the most time with? Well, Philippians 2 has a clue. In verse 7, you can read the words, he took the form of a servant, Do you see that? He's not just a man like you and me. He's not the king or the one to be worshipped. He took the form of a servant. You remember him washing feet or going with the the sinners or the the people that are uneducated or the people that are lost, and he goes after them and he, he serves them. This is God Almighty serving. And then verse eight, he humbled himself. And he became obedient. You see that submission, obedient to God the Father to find the cross and die there for our penalty, for our sin. A serving man, an obedient man. Now, listen to what Jesus said when he stood up in the synagogue and taught a bunch of men. He quoted Isaiah 61. Listen to what he said. The Spirit, this is in Luke 4, 18, if you want to take this note. It's a great verse. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. So where is Jesus heading? Where Jesus goes, we must follow. We must go as well. 
So we can look around our life and we can say, what boundaries exist between me and those, I'm reading Isaiah 61, those who are poor or those who are prisoners or those who are blind or those who are oppressed? Where are those people in my life? And, and, and a significant thing you need to ask, a very important question, is what boundaries exist between me and them? I'm not asking what boundaries have you actively and intentionally created because your answer will probably be not many, very few. I'm willing to interact with these people, but there are still boundaries that exist, either created by your past or subtly, you just kind of find yourself in this place where there are boundaries. So you need to be active and intentional in looking at these boundaries. The reason I say that, the intentionality of looking at the boundaries is because this is what Jesus did. The the pronoun that's used in Philippians 2 is is a reflexive, reflexive. it's a himself. Jesus emptied himself. These These are, like he did this to himself. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself. These are things that Jesus actively and intentionally did to himself. And so you and I will follow him. Look around. Where are those boundaries that prevent you from serving these? Now, a lot of times I know if I read the Great Commission and that's all I read, go into all the nations, right? That's what I read. (laughs) Who am I going to? And this is what we do as Christians. A lot of times what we do is we, we hide behind this vague calling of God, right? And, and, and I'm just maybe speaking for myself. I say, am I called to this person right here? Hmm. And what happens is I think it's not safe. Nope, not called to that. And I walk away. Am I called to this community or this situation Hmm, that's going to take a lot of my time. It's not convenient. It doesn't fit into my schedule. I'm already very busy and I can't handle both. I'm not called to that. Christ community, are we called to do something in this city? And one of the things we might say is too expensive. Yeah, I'm not called to that. My finances can't handle it. So I'm not called there. And what we end up doing is we hide behind it. What we need to do is we need to reread Philippians 2 and see what Jesus has done intentionally to the boundaries that separate him from sinful man. And actively, and as intentionally as Jesus did, get rid of those boundaries. So where Jesus goes, we must go. Uh, Another thing we might learn from Jesus' humiliation is this idea of following. It's kind of leading into this, right? If where Jesus goes, we must go. In the Old Testament, God was on high. He was the pure, almighty God. And the only way you could access him is through great pain and agony to get pure, right? And to sacrifice and become clean and then enter into the Holy of Holies. That's where you could meet God and hear his voice. Right? So he from on high, from this pure and holy place, God said to his people, obey me, do my commands. But there's a, twi- there's a, a switch here in the New Testament. Jesus is definitely saying, obey me, but he's saying something new. He comes down and is humiliated as a man and stands before you and me in the midst of us, right next door to us, 
hitting our shoulders, right? Right here. And he says, follow me. That's different. It's not just, I hear him from up there and follow and obey him. If God said that, you know, in heaven, you know, follow me, I can't get you. I can't, I can't follow you. But Jesus is down here with us. He's become a human being. That's what the incarnation says. And he looks at you and me and he says, I'm right here. Follow me. This is a, a big disagreement between kids and their parents, right? Most children look at their parents, especially when they become teenagers, and they say, you don't understand what it's like to be me. You don't understand, mom and dad, what it's like to grow up in the system. And it's actually pretty funny because I used to say that to my parents. I, I mean, most kids think it. I said it. I literally said, mom and dad, you have no idea what it's like to be a teenager. And they just laughed at me. You don't know what, you don't think we were, we, what? I have been through everything. Yeah, maybe it was a different time. Yes, maybe there were no cell phones back then. So I get there's differences, but, but the key, the essence of what it means to grow up and experience being raised and growing up and maturing, my parents have experienced those things. Everything that I was thinking and feeling, that they've experienced those things. And I remember, I might have been 17. I was a little late, you know, to figure this out. But I remember figuring that out, and I was like, I, was, I stood back and went, oh, they understand way more than I thought. That's Jesus. You know, the, the one small thing I might mention real quickly, the humiliation of Christ, it, it's a great lesson. It unites body and soul. This is, a, this is an idea that you and I struggle with a little bit. We tend to either focus on the physical, physical, physical. This is a lot of what agnostics or people that don't believe in Christ, they, they, they think, okay, we got to feed the sick and, and, um, or heal the sick and feed the poor and house them and put clothes on them. You know, this physical world is very important. Or you might say, no, forget about the physical. Try to escape the physical. Shed it. Get rid of it. And just focus on the spiritual. That's what's important. You, you can see that. But in the incarnation, what happens is God says that there's a physical world and a spiritual world, and they're both important. And to us today, it might just be helpful to remember that God thinks matter matters. The first place we learn or read about our God, his hands are in the mud forming a human being, and he calls it good. The last chapter in the Bible is Revelation 22. We talk about this new heaven and new earth and a city coming down for us to dwell in a physical city. And there's a river and there's a tree and God's the sun and it's a physical world. And then right in the middle, the incarnation happens where Jesus insists on you not being confused about his physical form. He eats. After he's raised from the dead even, he eats food. They all think he's a ghost. They all think he's a disembodied spirit, right? And he says, no, feel my hands. Put your hand here in my side. Let's eat some fish together. Jesus absolutely insists on them not forgetting he's a physical body. You ever think about this, that Jesus will always be a physical man for all time? It's a new thought. But he is. And you and I, as we go through our lives, our bodies and souls, we're going to be united in our salvation and glorification. In the very end, in heaven, like I thought when I was a kid, we're not going to be ghosts that float through walls. Now, I know if you want to float through walls, that's really fun, and it's disappointing to 
learn that you're not going to do that so much in heaven. You're going to have a physical body in heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. What does this mean for you and me? Here's what it means. I always wanted, I always wanted to go to the Great Barrier Reef and swim with whale sharks. And I often think, what am I doing here in Wilmington? What am I doing in this dead-end job? I got to get out. I got I to gotta move out. I got to explore the world. I'm, you know, you, you feel that, right? You feel like I'm in this cubicle or I'm in this place and I'm in this small city. I'm in, I got to get out. Young mothers, you feel this way. I'm in this home with this child and that's it. That's my life, right? And you got to break out and you got to see the world. But the promise is there's a new heaven and a new earth. Do you hear that? What do you think that Adam and Eve were doing in the Garden of Eden before the fall? They were exploring the world. And that's what we're going to do at the end of time. When new heavens and new earth come down, your bucket list of all the things you want to see on earth, you can go see them if you want to, but you can also wait and see them later. You're not going to lose that. That's what the incarnation, you see how many wonderful things that the incarnation can help us rethink our lives and rethink the way we behave. All right, briefly, we're going to get into the the exaltation of Christ. Let's look at this in verse 9. It says, these are the steps up. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These are the steps up. God highly exalts him. He gets a new name. Knees are bowing. Tongues are confessing. And Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the steps up. His body is healed. His spirit revived. His whole being saved. His whole being is saved. He's raised back to life. And this is interesting, this, this idea of every knee in heaven, on earth, under the earth, right? Every knee will bow. That means that angels will bow. Christians, I mean, we're already, well, we're trying to bow. We're already bowing, right? We're bowing already. You know, angels and Christians, but also Muslims and Hindus and atheists and even Satan himself, their knees will bow. Their tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. And God the Father receives the glory from all of this. That's his exaltation. Now, what does it mean? How does it change the way that we think? How does it change the way that we live? The first thing I thought of was there's real hope. Now, you've heard this preached in the pulpit many, many times, but let's remember it just once more. I know there's real hope. Uh, The reason is because of one phrase in verse 9, therefore God. It's important for you to realize that the humiliation of Christ was done by Christ intentionally to himself. But the exaltation of Christ, he didn't do it to himself, did he? God did it to him. That is so backwards from our world today. In our world, we're trying to promote ourselves. We're trying to raise ourselves. We're trying to better ourselves. But in essence, if you think about the business of a Christian, it's to follow Christ, to actively think of ways that you don't 
necessarily exalt yourself. No, how can I humiliate myself? That sounds terrible. How can I follow Christ into humility and servitude? How can I do those things? But all the while, you know verse nine is coming, therefore God. Look, if, if there was no verse nine that said, therefore God did all these things to exalt Christ, I wouldn't wanna follow Jesus. It would just be steps down, crash and burn. And that'd be the end of it. But the whole time Jesus was coming down, in his mind, he knew that at one point, God would come. God would intervene. And he heard the words, therefore God, and he just kept moving forward. I know this because of Hebrews 12, verse 2. It says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And what's that joy? Here it is. The next line, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So as you think about following Jesus, as you think about going into the world and and humbling yourself and giving up, maybe seeing the Grand Canyon so that you can do this thing for the Lord, that you can serve others, as you give up your wealth, as you give up your, your, your titles, your power, your, if you follow Jesus into this humble place of servitude, the whole time you're doing that, you can think at one point, at one point, God is going to raise me up and save me, glorify. This is the glory of the Christian being glorified in Jesus Christ. And that is joy. You can, you can come down as Jesus did. You can be humiliated as Jesus did with joy because of this real hope that we have, real hope that we have. I think that's so encouraging to us to remember. And maybe one other point about this exaltation, this humiliation and then the exaltation, it's a process. This is interesting because I, I thought, how much time did it take for all of this to happen? And this is where Christmas becomes really helpful. Jesus was born not as a 23-year-old man who's ready to go. I think he started his ministry, we say, when he's 30. Okay, so he's born at 29. He's got one year, right? He's at 29. He's got one year. Then he's going to serve and then die and all this stuff. He's born as a baby. And he grows up year after year after year after year until he's 30, until the time is right. It's a process. And so for you and me, it's also a process. This kind of following of Christ is going to take the rest of your life. It's not overnight. It's not something that just happens. And you might stay down being humiliated, taking on the form of a servant, being humbled. You might stay there for a while. It's a process. But the exaltation is coming. And even now, we are being renewed. We are being healed. We are being changed. This is the process we call sanctification. Another way to say it is prunes. Like we, we not prunes, we're being pruned as a tree would be pruned. <laughs> not prunes. I don't like prunes, but, but, but if you're a tree, branches you don't need come off. This is a process that God is using throughout your entire life so that you might grow into what he wants you to be. Okay, conclusion, finally, let's wrap this all up. He begins as God. 
He takes steps down. We call it the humiliation. He reaches rock bottom. He does that to himself. Then God comes in, exalts him back up and to the highest place known. And then he looks to you and he says, follow me. Follow me. Now, when I first heard the Great Commission, I was maybe, when I first heard it, I was like five. But when I first took it seriously and said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to make it my life calling, I was 19 years old. I heard it from the pulpit. And I thought, I went home that day, I remember driving home, and I remember thinking, that's not the Great Commission. That's the terrifying commission. Terrifying. The, the commission that Jesus gives us in our lives, you, you should realize, it's scary. John 15, Jesus says, the world will hate you. Don't be surprised. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. They, they'll kill many of you. Others of you will be persecuted in other ways. Don't be surprised at that. Matthew 10, he says, hey, I want you to take up your cross and follow me. <laughs> Terrifying. To your death. Matthew 5 says, to love your enemies. Your enemies are trying to destroy you, and you're just going to give up and love. That's terrifying. Obeying Jesus, following Jesus is terrifying. Emptying ourselves, making ourselves nothing, becoming a servant, being willing to die. All right, I've established that. It's terrifying. That's how I feel. But here's the example that I had just recently. It was reminded to me. I was coming home uh, from the Philippines after we adopted our son, Noel. It's from the Philippines. It's a 15-hour flight in the last hour or so. Uh, we're coming into Atlanta to make our, our landing. And it's, it's a little bit uh, stormy. There's some clouds. And uh, this starts to have some turbulence. And my child, who's on his tablet, wakes up from his tablet. He's never flown in a plane before. He's looking out thinking, what's happening? Now, my son understands basically what a plane does. Like, he didn't think we were just driving on the ground. or so. He understands we're in the air. He also understands if the plane breaks apart, we're going down, we're going to die. And in his mind, he thinks, this is it. This is my moment. I'm about to die. And I look at him, and I see this look on his face. You know, I'm like, oh, I've got to comfort my son. But the truth is, I'm just as scared as he is. I'm a, I'm a wimp when it comes to flying. I look out the window. I don't know how that plane wing stays on the plane. It bounces up and down, and things are, you know, I don't know. I just, I get really nervous. What helps me in that moment of turbulence when I consider the fear of this plane being destroyed? Well, it's not what came into my mind. Some of you have read this book by Michael Crichton, Airframe. You ever read that book? Yeah, it's about, it's about how they made planes and some of them had faulty uh, parts on them because of some corrupted person in the corporation that was embezzling money or something, I don't know. And, and the plane crashed and everyone died. And they're trying to figure out what's wrong and how, how can they fix it. That's not the book to think of in that moment. That's, that is not the book. Put that thought out of your head. What I ended up doing is two things. I began to think of the engineers that put this plane together. I've read something of planes because of my fear, and I realized they only use the best parts. Only the smartest people in the world build airplanes. Boeing is, is pretty awesome. I mean, the things that they do at Boeing engineering-wise, I mean, it just amazes me. So there's some pretty smart people that put this plane together. If I could just maybe have him sit next to me on the plane, you know, and, and just say, hey, are we going to be okay? Yes, he might say. When I attach that wing to the plane, 
I attached it. I put in these kinds of screws and bolts and whatever they did and the welding and this is what we did. And and here's how you can be absolutely sure. Well, I didn't have the engineer sitting next to me, but that thought did comfort me. But here's the other one. I look around the, the, the cabin for frequent flyers. They're, they're a really good sort of help to those who are afraid. Because frequent flyers know the drill. They know real turbulence that just, you're going to die turbulence. And they know the normal turbulence that they've been through in a hundred times. The best frequent flyer, though, is the flight attendant. And all I did was lock eyes on a flight attendant. And this is what comforted me. The flight attendant yawned. That was it. I was like, son, we're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> we're fine. That's Jesus. Jesus created you. He knows you. He knows this world because he created it and designed it. Just like the engineer who put the plane together. And Jesus, God, never makes mistakes. The second thing is he came down to earth as a human being and he did it. He was on the plane and he looks at us and he says, it's going to be okay. Verse 9 is coming. Therefore, God. Father God, we pray this, this uh, morning you would remind us not just of the intellectual parts of the incarnation, but remind us of how the incarnation changes everything. How we can think and act differently because of what you did. Father, we look at you. Jesus, we look at you as God. We know that you are almighty, transcendent God, the creator of this world. Jesus, we appreciate and confess to you that you took steps, emptying yourself, taking on the form of a servant, dying even on a cross. And almighty Father God, we understand and love this fact that you exalted your son and then told us to follow. Give us courage. Give us joy to endure all the things that you have for us that one day we can hear the words, therefore God, and rejoice. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.